There are a lot of people who have wrongly assumed that just because I am anti-Trump, that it automatically means that I am carrying the water for one Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., who we all commonly know as Joe Biden. And by the way, I had no idea that was his full name until I looked it up just before I turned on this tape recorder. Anyway, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's just we're at DEFCON 5 right now, and my next vote will be one that certainly reflects that. Joe Biden is not the best Democratic presidential candidate. I've repeatedly said he's just another example of mediocrity. In fact, in some areas, he's below mediocre. His two biggest assets is that he's not Donald Trump and he was vice president under Barack Obama. I did not vote for Joe Biden in the primary. And unfortunately, a big reason he'll be the Democratic nominee is because obsession with beating Trump became the standard when we had an opportunity to do something a little more revolutionary and bold. But there was so little faith that white people would vote for anyone else because choosing Joe Biden was definitely about giving white people a palatable option that we went to the well of old white guys again. Speaking of old white guys, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. said something about old white guys that really highlights a prevalent problem in this country. And so this week, the word of the week is revisionist. So Joseph was doing a virtual town hall recently that was organized by the Service Employees International Union. During the town hall, a healthcare worker shared that she was concerned because Trump continues to blame Asians for coronavirus because he still is referring to it as the quote unquote China virus, which is racist, by the way, to which Biden said, and this is a direct quote, no sitting president has ever done this. Never, never, never. No Republican president has done this. No Democratic president. We've had races and they've existed and they've tried to get elected president. He's the first one that has. Whoa, 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 partner. Slow this train down. One of the many unfortunate byproducts is that people look at Donald Trump and give him way too much credit for being the only racist president as Joe Biden just did. Yes, he's a racist. Yes, he's a white supremacist. But the first Sorry, America, you've elected racists before. A lot of them. 10 of the first 12 U.S. presidents all owned slaves, which last time I checked, if you own slaves, that probably means you're pretty racist. And one of those racist presidents was Andrew Jackson, who was a Democrat. There also was a racist president named Woodrow Wilson, who was so racist that he resegregated the federal government after reconstruction. He was so invested in racism that the federal government started requiring photo IDs with their job applications to make sure they didn't make the mistake of hiring any black people on his watch. He also was a staunch defender of the Ku Klux Klan. Even Abraham Lincoln, the alleged great emancipator, also was a racist. Lincoln opposed slavery, but he deeply believed Black people were inferior to white people, even though Frederick Douglass was one of his consultants. During a speech in 1858, Abraham Lincoln said this about black people. I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. 
I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln. So I hate to break it to you, Joe. America has had a lot of racist presidents. Trump is just the latest in the long line. And that is why our word of the week is revisionist. Now let's get to today's guest. It all started with her sliding into my DMs. And when she did, I was truly stunned. I honestly never guessed she was checking for me at all. And what's ironic is I was checking for her, but not for the reason most people check for her. Most people are fans of hers because when it's all said and done, she will have played one of the most iconic female television characters for almost 20 years. People have lived whole ass lives while watching her on television. But I started checking for her, not because of what she was doing in television, but because of how she has used her voice to amplify and support women of color, especially black women. We use the word ally lightly, but my next guest is a true ally. She is down for the cause. And more importantly, she doesn't just talk about it. She is about it. She is the star of Grey's Anatomy, as in her character bears the show's name. She has a unique perspective on race because of not just how she grew up in Boston, the fact that she also is married to a black man and is raising black children. And being in Hollywood, she has seen some of the shit that black actors and other people of color have had to go through to just gain even a small taste of success in the industry. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the wonderful Ellen Pompeo. So Ellen, I promise I'm not saying this just because I have you as a guest. I've turned in the rough draft to my um, manuscript for my memoir, right? Do you know the show I wrote my memoir to uh, was Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> you probably did not know this. No, really? Yes. So I watched the first two seasons of Grey's and then life happened and I was ripping and running and, you know, being in my 20s or so or so. <laughs> and I kind of like dropped it and didn't pick it back up. So I was like, man, all right. Uh, you know, obviously Game of Thrones has been over for a while. You know, I was like, I need a good binge watch type of show. Um, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna pick back up Grey's Anatomy because I, I don't know anything that happened. I managed to also have avoided most of the spoilers. So I had no idea what I knew of one, right? I knew of a, a couple of people that had left. Like I knew Katherine Heigl left. So I knew that happened, right? So I'm like, all right, well, let me pick it back up. So I am currently, I think, in season seven. That's why I, I still got a ways to go. Uh-huh. Thank you, Jamel, for watching and picking back up. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I still got a ways to go. Um, and then <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to say this, but uh, in doing research for this interview, 
I did not know Patrick Dempsey left. <laughs> so I was like, holy shit, spoiler alert. I was like, wait, he's gone? <laughs> so now I'm watching it with like, well, damn, well, how did they get him up out of here? So literally, I feel like the not a combination of the most unhip person ever for not knowing that he actually left the show. So don't spoil it for me about what happens. All right. <laughs> I won't, but man, that's a doozy that episode. That's going to, you know, I don't know if, if you'll be writing when you watch that. That's a hard one. That's a tough one to get through. Given what is the um, modus operandi of Grey's, I expect it to be tragic and horrible. So I just, I just, I'm just assuming this is the case that this will be, you know what it is. Um, but no, uh, I, I'm just so pleased to join you um, or for you to join me because I've, despite the fact that I had only seen two seasons of your show, I- I'd seen a lot of the commentary you made and a lot of the things you've done in the social justice space. And so I'm a fan of that Ellen Pompeo more so, I guess, than the, the Meredith uh, Grey um, version. And um, I just w- have wondered, especially seeing that wonderful interview you did with um, uh, Gina Rodriguez and Gabrielle Union. Uh, and it was a fourth woman whose name is just suddenly escaping me. It's Emma Roberts. Emma Roberts. That's who it was. Um, and of course, the Hollywood Reporter story where you where you openly discuss your pay, something more women ought to do. But your voice has just become so important and critical uh, especially, uh, I would say in the last five or six years. So I'm wondering like, what was it? You may have always been this way and maybe people like myself did not realize this, but what was it that caused you to kind of start to be more vocal about these issues of importance? Well, thank you for saying all that. That's really meaningful coming from you. Um, you, you also, we share that you speak up, um, and say what's on your mind. I would say, you know, probably age, Confidence comes with age. I think that, you know, as women, so much of our importance and our relevance comes from being young and beautiful, right? And I've said this before also, that that what, what pe- young girls don't realize is the older we get, the wiser we get, and, uh, and the more confident we get. And so I, I would attribute um, my confidence to, to my age and having been through things. And also, you know, experiences like this, having my voice validated you know, other women validating me speaking up continues to, you know, help my confidence and, 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 and let me know it's okay. And that it is helpful to people to hear when I, when I have things to say, because you don't, I I don't ever want to sort of speak all of my speaking that I do or all of my commenting that I do is, is always with the intention to help. Um, it's never just to sort of say what I think because, you know, who really cares about that? It's, it's more, the, the intention is always, there's always intention behind it. And, and that is always to help in, in whatever way I can. So, I mean, I think you're right about the age that like it does. You grow into yourself, you get more comfortable with yourselves. And then at some point you just kind of run out of fucks. And I don't know when that happens, <laughs> but when yeah. would you say that you probably ran out of fucks? <laughs> I would say probably... I ran out of fucks after that article because that article was so interesting, you know, because I had all of these incredible people reach out to me and, and applaud me for that article from, you know, Billie Jean King to Jay-Z to just all kinds of people who are like, that was amazing, right? Really people I admire and respect. And, uh, and then I had people very close to me 
take it the wrong way, take it personally. I mean, what were they taking personally? I really don't know. I can't speak for them. Um, I just know that I got a, a lot of hate from my inner circle at the time. And, uh, you know, women. And then, you know, haters are going to hate. We know that. So I think once you really understand that, you know, then, then you, you, you're, you're able to, to give less fucks. <laughs> the, more, the more experience, I think we should, we should thank haters for that. Because as long as your heart is in the right place, then, you know, you can give zero fucks, I think. Was the reaction, and I guess to give people a little backstory, so this was a piece done in The Hollywood Reporter that you wrote from a first person um, in 2017 where you talked about uh, when you became known as, as the highest paid woman on television. And you talked about what this journey and this process was like along with disclosing, um, you know, your salary. And uh, I'm curious, was the industry reaction different from say somebody like me who is not in the industry where I was just applauding and thought this was really awesome. Did you find people in the industry maybe gave you more of that hate that you're talking about? Uh, no. So, so one correction is I didn't, I did not write that article and I am forgetting the woman's name, shame on me, who wrote the article, who interviewed me for that. Yeah, I'll look it up. But I, for some reason, why was I thinking it was in the first person? I'm not I'm not really sure why, but I'll look it up. That woman won an award for that article. Um, and I forget what that article, what the award also is called. No, I mean, everybody in the industry applauded me. It was only people who, who, who worked with me in my direct circle thought um, that, that it was, uh, that somehow... They, you know, they were, um, it, that it was somehow a diss to them, um, where, where it really wasn't honestly in that article, I didn't plan for that article to be what it was. It, you know, it turned as, as many interviews do, um, I'm sure you've experienced this too. It, it turns into something, you know, that, that, that became bigger than what we, I initially thought the conversation was right. Um, which the, I, that's divine intervention. When that happens, that's the universe taking over. And it, it was meant to become a message. So boom, it becomes a message. But, but uh, I, it was really meant to be me against the studio system. That, that article, the intention behind that was, it was me against the studio system and to, to, to tell other actresses that this is how they bamboozle us. You know, and black actresses have a whole different experience, right? I'm talking as a privileged, blonde hair, green eyed, you know, white girl, my experience um, from, from with with the studio and what they said to me and what they what they did to me and how they devalued me in order to you know make the best deal possible and pit other people against me or pit the male actor against me that article was really just meant to be how this how, how the system the studio system devalues women so uh, when you went in to do uh, this article and by the way the author's name is Lacey Rose I, I looked it up Lacey Rose and did you go in knowing you were going to disclose how much money you made or did that just kind of organically happen? You know, I can't remember specifically, but what I do remember is that we had to be very careful because of course you don't want the studio to be upset with you and you don't want to, you don't want to upset this, the, the goal wasn't to upset the studio. The goal was really to talk to younger actresses and say, this is what they do. Don't take it personally. 
They will pit you against one another. They will devalue you. They'll do anything in their systemic long practice of devaluing talent so that they can just get the best deal. So you shouldn't take that personally because it isn't personal. And, and, and I used to think it was. You have to get to a place and hopefully you have representatives that educate you along the way and teach you it is not personal. It's it's just what they do. It's hard. It was uh, hard not to notice because I think in one part of the article, they talked about how you and I know you two are, are have a good relationship, how uh, Patrick Dempsey, um, your co-star on Grey's Anatomy, that you were trying to, um, you know, strategize with him like, hey, if we go in together we can, you know, we can make sure that this is an equitable situation. And he seemed to be resistant to that. I remember some comments that Liam Neeson made along those same lines saying that he didn't feel like he was obligated to do that with a female co-star. Um, what is, I, I guess, what should be the expectation from men in the, in Hollywood's industry that, you know, they they kind of don't seem to, and this is not taking a shot at Patrick Dempsey or Liam Neeson, but they kind of don't seem to understand how important this is to have this level of equity. I mean, is that, I imagine that's probably not surprising to you, but nevertheless, is it disappointing to some degree? Um, it was disappointing at the time, but it, it isn't disappointing anymore. I actually am grateful for the experience because look where I got to, look what I got to do, look what I got to make look what I got to get off my chest and to help other women. Everything, I really believe everything happens for a reason. And I had to go through that and see that I, I, I could do it on my own. And people are always going to disappoint you, but what can you take from it? And I think that I did the job of taking something from it and moving forward and uh, steamrolling over it. Yeah. Well, you played an iconic female uh, television character. Um, but I imagine it's a lot of weight that comes with that because um, you sort of are imprisoned in being Meredith Grey for now. Anyway, um, does it is it one of those things where you see obviously you see, you know, both the iconic nature of the character that you play, but at the same time, whenever that time comes that you're no longer playing this character, is there's a part of you that's sort of in a little way dreading this because you know that people may not be able to let her go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, it's okay because, you know, I made choices to stay on the show. You know, for me personally, a healthy home life was, you know, more important than a career. I didn't grow up with a particularly happy childhood. So to have a happy home life was really something I needed to complete to, to close the hole in my heart. And so I made a decision to make money <laughs> and not, not chase creative acting roles because, it, you know, that's what ultimately I think, you know, the hustler in me is I, I don't like chasing anything ever. And acting to me in my experience was a lot of chasing. You got to chase roles. You got to beg for roles. You got to convince people to, and although I produce and it's the same kind of a thing. I think I, I still do it from a place of I'm, I'm never that thirsty because I'm financially set. And I'm saying to myself, no, wait a second. This is my face. Now, yes, other people created the show. Shonda Rhimes created the show and, and we'd be nowhere without that. And the studio made the show and put the show on the air. I'm not saying people aren't, uh, don't deserve what they have. I'm just saying 
why should all these people make hundreds of millions of dollars off of this, which I'm the face of, and I not get wealthy too from it? So I, I just thought it didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense for me to, to sort of, you know, walk away. And because I, I knew it, it was such a, you know, a, a downloadable show. I, I knew the numbers, the streaming numbers, you know, so it just made sense that I, I want a piece of this pie too. I'm not just going to have one bite and walk away and let everybody else keep profiting for years. And it, you know, it's a, it's a hustle acting, you, you know, you got to go sleep in Toronto and sleep here and work at midnight. And, you know, I, I got in the game late, Jamel. I, uh, I didn't start great. So I was 33 and then I started having kids at 40. So it's not like, you know, I, I, if I started the show when I was younger, 25, I probably would have dipped out when I was 31, 32 and my six year contract was up. You know, and I knew coming up on 40, it's like, I don't want to be out there chasing things, running after things, begging. I'd rather just see this as the blessing that it is. You know, it's pretty common for actors to try to run away from stuff. They're super well known for something and they have to get as far away from it as, as possible. And, and that's okay. I understand that, completely understand that. But at my age and, and where my life is, I'm not trying to run away from anything. It is who I am. It is my, I've made my choices and I'm cool with it. And, um, and I actually have a, a real passion, which is uh, to sort of start to talk about and break down systemic racism in the healthcare industry. This is something that, that has plagued us forever. And I think the show is, is, um, has given me a real window into that. And that's something, a platform I'm very passionate about. And I want to continue down that path and and try to do more work in that arena. So um, Grace has been a gift. There's some some doors I can break open or at least start some conversations to do some good in the world. You, um, I've read some comments that you made before where you seem to indicate that you could visualize once, whenever this show uh, ends, that you may not act anymore. Do you, you still feel that way? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm kind of like open to whatever, you know, um, there's a project right now that I'm actually talking to some people about that looks really fun that I'd love to do if it comes together. But, you know, we don't know with COVID and how things can, you know, how you can shoot anything and, you know, you have to sell things and the market and the climate has to be right for certain projects. You know, whatever's meant to be for me, you know, I think my mom is up in heaven and I think she pulls all the strings. And all I do is wake up in the morning, you know, with an open mind and an open heart. And I just see where the day leads me. Whatever is meant to be for me will be. I I truly believe that I'm, I'm at peace. All right, you brought up your family a second ago. And may I say, I think it's it, your daughter, Sienna. Am I pronouncing that correct? Yes, yes, yes. She may be my spirit animal. Because <laughs> <laughs> she is not playing any games and does not like to be tested by her brother. <laughs> she is not messing around. <laughs> um, but you have been very vocal um, about racial issues especially within the context of you having three biracial children, you being married to a black man. As of the taping of this podcast, as you are well aware, this is a very tough time uh, in this country with the unrest and protests. We're having conversations about police brutality and systemic racism that frankly feel much different than the ones that we've had before at different historical points in our country. What are you 
able or what have you been able to tell your children about this moment that we're living in? Well, I think first and foremost, I want my kids, you know, Sienna's five and Eli's three. So they're too young. Stella is 10. Um, and she did, you know, she's had some moments uh, where she's broken down, you know, hysterically crying are, you know, are the police going to kill my daddy? So, you know, I, I have this conversation a lot with a lot of people. It's like, I, you have to tell, you know, you have to tell them. Yeah, I have to, I have to have conversations with her. I have to let her know that uh, police treat black people unfairly and um, there is violence. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a delicate balance that I, um, that I walk with not only telling her what's going on, but just making sure I'm doing everything right as a white parent to my black child make sure I'm educating her as well as I can, that I am doing everything in our community, in her school that I can. It's, it's a multifaceted work that, that, I, that I do every day. It's, it's not just about, I, I, try to, I try to tell her enough, but not too much to scare her because she, she was having anxiety. Um, when she drives around in the car with her dad, she, she, you know, she is afraid. Um, so I, I try to temper it with, you know, I went out and protested and, and, I, and I let her know that you have to get out and speak up and do things and be active. And the work that I'm doing with her school, I try to tell her some of it too, uh, so that she's aware that, that every day I wake up and say to myself, what can I tackle today? How, what, what work can I do today to, to do my part? Yeah, it, it's tough because... Um as a black woman married to a black man, my, my husband is a, a licensed gun owner. And uh, before we moved to Los Angeles, we were living apart. Um, I was living in Connecticut because I was still working at ESPN and he was living in Myrtle Beach. And it would give me a lot of anxiety um, because it, uh, at times, they, you know, they have different gun rules. Like he would have his gun in his car and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this because of course we saw Philando Castile and, and what happened there. And, and just knowing just as a black man carrying a gun that the police are not going to give you a ben a certain benefit of the doubt uh, as a wife, um, you know, somebody married to a black man, what levels of anxiety do you have because the faces of what we've seen, police brutality, what how that's been acted out, have obviously been on black faces in very brutal ways. Do you live with a certain amount of anxiety over this? Of course I do. Uh, nothing compared to what black people do, but of course I do. And I, and I have to say that it's not just because I'm married to a black man. It's not just because of my husband. You know, I have had black friends my whole life. Um, I've always gotten a lot of shit. You know, I grew up in Boston, one of the most racist places. Well, I, I'm not going to speak about now. Haters don't come at me. Because you know how Boston, you know how Boston gets. When <laughs> I know. Listen, and I love Boston and I, and I, and I'm grateful for the education that it gave me. But, you know, I grew up in the seventies and eighties in Boston. It's an incredibly racist place. I grew up in an Italian Irish neighborhood. Uh, I'm like Ray Liotta and Goodfellas. Like I, I, I saw it all. I had a front row seat. And, uh, and then, and then being that girl who had that front row seat and I always did go to the black neighborhoods and I always did go to the urban nights at the clubs, which is like such a racist title to give that night. But I always hung out with black people and I always caught shit for it. And, um, so 
so I, I feel like I have a, a, a pretty good lens on some of it. And but so, so sorry to bring it back to the point I was trying to make. Um, I would do this anyway, even if I weren't married to my husband, because uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, all of these people are people in my life. I really think that white people need to, to need to make more friends because I think you can do all the Instagram posts you want. You can read all the books you want. You can listen. And, and all of that is necessary work. I don't know if you follow Erica Badu on Instagram, but uh, yeah, <laughs> she, um, she, uh, one of her Baduisms, she put out this uh, graph, this like circular graph one day weeks ago. And she talked about the growth zone and the growth zone is I think that if people aren't emotionally connected to black people or any people of color, Latinx, Asian, indigenous people, whatever it is, if your friend circle doesn't look like the world around you, you're never really going to have that connection. And listen, that takes work, right? You're a grown person. How do I make new friends? I don't know. I'm not making writing a book on how to make new friends, but make them. I make them all the time. I have no problem making friends. So I think that that's part of the work that isn't being discussed. And I think white people have to be ready for black people, women, or men, doesn't really matter, to, to not want to be a friend. All right, Ellen, I have a lot more I need to talk to you about. We want to take a quick break. Since you're from Boston, I got some new edition stuff for you. So, you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not going to let you escape. You already dropped Baduism. By the way, the key to get getting a black friend is drop a Baduism and it will happen <laughs> instantly. <laughs> Ellen just gave you a nugget and you didn't even know it. We'll be right back with more with Ellen Pompeo in just a moment. We spent a lot of time in the the last half before the break talking about allyship. And what I noticed about your discussions of it is that you've been doing this for a long time, that you've always had diverse friendship groups um, and you haven't let, um, you know, this sort of uh, this guilt, I think, that is in the air of like white guilt determine like this is why I want to be friends with with people of other races. You just wanted to be friends with people of other races just organically. There's a lot of white people right now asking the question of how they can be an ally, um, although you are more of a disruptor than an ally, which is greater than being an ally. So for the white folks asking how they can contribute, how they can join this fight against systemic racism, oppression, police brutality, what would you say to them? I would say to them, just stop and sort of breathe and listen. And somebody fighting for the right to be seen or heard or vote or walk down the street or eat M&Ms or sleep while being Black that's not taking anything away from you and no one is accusing you of anything. There's no need to get defensive and to get defensive is not a productive emotion. I want to be very careful here what I say, because I don't want to say what the black community needs because I don't know what the black community needs because I'm not black. And I, and I, and I, 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 I want to say that when you call me an ally, I, I, I take that with, you know, so much humility and and I, by no means do I do I sit on any pedestal and think I know anything or more than anyone else or that I'm not a constant student of this world because I am. So 
Uh, I've made many mistakes. I've said many wrong things. Uh, I've offended many people by things that I've said, whether I meant them or not. So first, I want to say that, uh, that, that, that I, I don't sit in any judgment of anybody else. And, and I'm not, I don't think I'm an authority on anything. I, I personally get a, a lot of people that seem very defensive. And, I, and I'm not sure where that comes from or why some white people feel the need to be defensive that I celebrate black people or black culture. That has nothing to do. If I say that I love oranges and I love oranges, then you're going to get, well, what the fuck about bananas? You don't like bananas? You didn't say shit about bananas. The fuck is wrong with bananas, Ellen? Bananas are great. I didn't say shit about bananas. I just said I like oranges. If you want to like bananas, go like bananas. Why are you mad? Because I like oranges. You know, the emotion and the rage at other human beings I think we, everybody just needs to slow down. And if, if someone is in the street crying that they're hurt, you know, h- how do you not say, oh, yeah, they just fell down. They're in the street. They're hurt. Where is your heart and where is your mind? And why can't you just see that another human being is in pain? Why is that some reflection on you? Another human being is in pain. So somehow that makes you mad? Let's acknowledge that none of us know shit about this, except black people and what they've experienced and what they've gone through. This has been a you know a learning journey for you know forever for me, and I'm I'm still you know I got hopefully fifty more years to go. Uh, you mentioned the neighborhood you grew up in in Boston, which does have um, much like a lot of cities a unique racial past. Your first experiences with with race, how did you? kind of, I don't want to say overcome where you grew up, but like, how was it that you were, you know, little Ellen Pompeo or however you were actually having the comfort to seek out other friendships and have experiences with people in, in different cultures than your own? Like, how did that even happen? I think that I always, you know, knew that there was more to life than where I grew up. I think that, you know, that's obviously why I wanted to become an actress. I knew there was a life outside there. And I heard a lot of racism. And it always made me curious. Made me curious about the gay community. Made me curious about the black community. Like, what is all this? All, all, all I see gay people doing is being joyous. All I see black people doing is being joyous and being called names. I see all the anger and hate and vitriol coming from here. And over here, see joy. So it doesn't really take, you know, a, a rocket scientist to figure out, well, I, I want to see what's going on over here. So I was just drawn to the joy and the celebration. Um, you mentioned that you, um, you kind of took a lot of shit for having these kinds of friendships. How did you handle that part of it? You know, it's not something you sort of announce at first, you know, it's just sort of, I would just sort of live my life here and then go to the clubs on the weekends. And one of my famous things that I did do actually is uh, my dad had a, had a pool in his yard, which was kind of unusual. Like most people didn't have pools where we grew up we had a pool. And so I, uh, I, I invited like probably 15, 20 of my black friends over to my dad's for a pool party. <laughs> Oh, I can only imagine how that went over. (laughs) So, you know, listen, my dad did plenty of things to me in my life that I didn't like and I didn't agree with. So now you have to deal with my shit that you don't like and you don't agree with. 
and he was, you know, mad. And, uh, you know, I just constantly like to challenge. And it's, it's funny because, you know, when, when I met my husband and we were talking about going home to meet my dad, you know, my husband was terrified. And I said, you know, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And my dad, who, who would have liked to think he was racist and grew up in that environment. And that's, I see how it's born. I see what it is, right? And then, he, and then Chris ended up being his favorite person in the entire world, who he couldn't go a day without speaking to. Obsessed with him. And, and it, it turns out they had known each other from back in the day. My father had gone through cancer. This is a great story, actually. My dad had gone through cancer, and it was on a lot of experimental drugs, and was kind of had a lot of anxiety and, and didn't remember much. And my husband said, that's Cigarette Joe. After we left, and I said, yeah, my dad sold cigarettes for a living. He worked for a company called Lorillard and had, you know, convenience stores as a route and would sell cigarettes. And uh, he said, you know, I used to sell your dad cigars. I used to rob cigars from the smoke shop. He was like one of my biggest customers. And I was like, really? And I, and I knew that my dad did that. And, and, uh, and he sold, you know, my dad had a huge side hustle selling cigarettes and cigars to the wise guys and they actually knew each other wow that yeah. came full circle yeah uh you know you you said you got into acting or, or the gray's role came along you know a, a little bit later in life than you maybe typically hear about actor stories what made you want to act in the first place so when i was little my mom died and i used to go spend the weekends in the summers with my aunt ellen and my uncle jimmy my uncle jimmy was my mother's brother and I used to go live with them in New York in the weekends in the summers. And my uncle Jimmy would take me to plays and we, he couldn't afford to buy tickets for the plays. So what we used to do is me and my, he would take me and my cousins and at intermission, we would just stand outside and we would wait for, we would wait for intermission. And then when it was intermission was over, my uncle would just go, okay, and I just stand in the back of the theater, you know, you're eight, no one's going to question you. So until I was like 15, I only saw the second act of like The King and I and Annie and so many plays. Um, you know, we used to go walk by the Winter Garden Theater and actors would come out in the limousines and all that. So I think it was my experience in New York was um, an escape from my real life. And New York City was so magical to me at that time. I think that that influenced me and, and, and made me want to go down that path. Now, uh, unless you have some psychic ability we're unaware of, there's no way that you could immediately look at, you know, the the, the early renderings of Grey's Anatomy and say, this is going to be an international billion dollar franchise. I get that part of it. However, um, I did read that you didn't think it would be very successful at all. I mean, is is that true? What was it about it that you thought this is not going to probably work for at all or for a any length of time that would make this even relevant in today's culture. Why did you doubt it? Um, I think I probably always doubted myself. Um, I knew that there were super talented people on the show, but I doubted it because I had been hearing from the network that they didn't like it. So I had been hearing, you know, we, we didn't have an air date. They tried to change the title of the show to complications. So, you know, and, you know, with pilots, like you just never know. And I, we weren't hearing great things because they wouldn't give us an air date. 
you know, and, and, and I had been in a few movies before Grey's and I had been, my parts had been like completely cut out altogether or reduced down to smaller parts. So although I had some luck working with some amazing people, I still, all my parts would get cut short and they don't tell you, you know, you show up at the premiere and you think you're in this movie and then your part is like a flash. So, you know, it's, it's, it's cruel. Yeah. Well, considering how much, as you said, you didn't really like the chase. Um, I, I guess at, like had Grey's not worked out. I mean, could you have seen yourself maybe quitting at acting altogether? Uh, I mean, who knows? You know, I think that, no, I don't think it, if Grey's didn't work out, I wouldn't have quit. I was going to quit before I got the first studio movie that I did is a movie called Moonlight Mile with Jake Gyllenhaal. And I, if I didn't get that part, I was seriously considering because at that time I was, I, I was 30. So it was like 29. So I was like, okay, if, if I don't get this, it's not meant to be because I was getting a lot of affirmation by big directors were calling me in. I would audition for big movies and I didn't get them, but a lot of directors were calling me and telling me like, you know, you pop on camera, you shouldn't quit you know, you have it, this and that. So I was getting some affirmation that like I was kind of in the right lane. We've been under, uh, you know, this, who knows how long we'll continue to be under some form of quarantine uh, with COVID-19. You know, you're on a medical show. Uh, I know you can't necessarily give away the plot, but I've asked other actor friends of mine this um, privately. It's like, how much should Hollywood incorporate what we're going through now into into content because we can't act like we didn't spend like months in the house. So it's like, but do people want to remember that or do they want to escape that? Like as somebody who's clearly a professional, what's your view on like how Hollywood should handle this time from a content standpoint? Well, I can't really speak for other shows. You know, I think depending on the content and, and the, the topic of the show, they, you don't necessarily have to talk about it. Right. But on our show, certainly on a medical show, I certainly think we have, I think it's an opportunity like everything, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for storytelling. I don't think we have to be in the midst of COVID because again, that's going to present challenges because we can't have many people on set. So you can't have the hallways packed with COVID patients. And, but like the blessing is we get to wear PPE and we can do our show all covered up, which is incredible. And I think it's, you know, it's rich for storytelling. Listen, these healthcare workers as heroes, as we call them, they didn't sign up to be heroes. <laughs> you know, they didn't know that they were going to, this is not what they signed up to do. So um, I think there's some, you know, there's some opportunity there for some, some storytelling and some, some empathy and understanding. So I, I'm proud of our show for the platform that we have in that respect is that we have this incredible platform that we can show middle America, we, we can, we can point out these things. We can, we have the ability to tell stories and talk about themes that, that need to be talked about in a way that's entertainment, but also provokes thought. Hopefully. Do you have any trepidation or um, concern about going back to work because of the pandemic? Yeah, I have asthma. So I definitely am, um, being hypervigilant and being, you know, really careful about what I do. That being said, I really trust um, the people that I work for. And I think, and I'm not going to walk into any situation that I don't feel comfortable. And I know it's not in their best interest for me to get sick. So I trust that they're going to um, 
take all the precautions necessary to keep me safe. I, I do. I feel really uh, blessed in that respect that there's people who really look out for me and care about me and, uh, and everybody on the, on the, sh- on the show. Um, there's thoughtful people behind the scenes. So I'm grateful for that. Grays is a moneymaker. They're not letting any of us get sick. <laughs> you know, we're all, we're all too important. All of all of the actors on the show, we're all too important. When in doubt, trust capitalism, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Follow the money. Yeah, follow yes. the money is still at work. All right. Uh, before I get you out of here and play a little game with you, uh, Ellen, that I play with all my guests on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Um, it's a game I call This or That. I'm going to give you two choices. And you have to pick one. And the fate of the world depends on it. So very light stakes. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. In terms of new edition, is it Can You Stand the Rain or Candy Girl? Those are two different vibes, you I know. I know, I know. You too- can't do that. I mean, Can You Stand the Rain is baby making music. <laughs> and Candy Girl... It's a little more pop and lighthearted. You know, yeah. yes. But they're two iconic any songs, so you got to make it's a choice. It's true. All right, well, Candy Girl, because that was their first hit. See? There you go. Yes. <laughs> so you have two very cool pictures in your Instagram profile, because I do deep a deep social media dive. <laughs> so uh, cooler moment for you, your picture with Drake, where y'all look real cozy. Or your picture with Denzel Washington. Ooh, I, I, I got to say Denzel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And listen, Drake is very accomplished human being and very prolific and very impressive. But come on, Denzel's just the G. Come on. You can't, <laughs> no one. And, and I think even even if Drake would want me to say that. I, I think you were, you were probably, uh, you're probably correct. We're playing chess, not checkers. <laughs> we're playing chess, not checkers. <laughs> Come on. Look, don't get me to do it some trade today. Oh, so so also so keep in mind it's season 12 of Grey's Anatomy, episode 9, Mr. Washington directed. And that was the highlight of my my uh my all my seasons on Grey's Anatomy was being directed by by Mr. Denzel Washington. And it was another spoiler alert when I discovered that. I was like, "Denzel, what?" Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Gee, have I been in a time capsule? How did I miss all of this?" And I don't speak the whole entire episode. Oh, wow. Yes. And you have an Emmy and I don't. <laughs> oh my god. What? <laughs> All right, you just gave me something real cool to brag about at parties, so thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Since you brought her up earlier, uh, Erica Badu or Jill Scott? Erica Badu. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Badu track? Or one of your favorites, because you probably have more than one. Okay, again, here's Mama's on the Fifth Floor with, with album names. Or song, you don't have to do album names. Um, I guess I'll see you next lifetime. Wait, wait, or get your shit. Wait. <laughs> Tyrone, you better call Tyrone. You better call Tyrone. Yes, come on. How, how many clubs have you been in when all the girls sing that song? You better call yeah, Tyrone. Yo, shit. <laughs> so good. That is an excellent song. Um, all right, and finally, Beyonce or Rihanna? Jamel, I'm going to hang up on you. <laughs> Those are both my friends. Mm-hmm. Those are both my friends. <laughs> Yo. I love them both too. I'm not friends with them, but I love them. I love them both. You know what I'm saying? Here's my dis- my distinction between the two of them is like, you know, um, 
I think between the two, I'd rather hang out with Rihanna. This is no shade to Beyonce. So Beehive, please don't come after me because I know I'm going to wake up in a ditch if I hang up with Rihanna. Like, I'm going to tell that story. <laughs> Assuming I survived that night for the to the end of time. So anyway, that's just my two cents. But Beyonce or Rihanna, I'm going to make you answer this question. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I'm sweating and my heart's beating fast. <laughs> Did I just give you anxiety? I'm sorry. I will say I will say Rhi because Beyonce has three babies, so she's too busy to hang out anyway. Yes. So Rihanna s- s- maybe has a little more time on her hands with all her brands. She's with got so brands. much time to hang out. So that's right. And please, <laughs> please, people, do not ask Rihanna about new music because you're gonna get cussed out because that's yes. the way. She- <laughs> but we can't wait for it. I'm sure I it's can't coming. wait for it. But, yes. uh, but I also am happy to see her just become this just consummate just business mogul. Like that mm. is truly amazing to watch um you are amazing to watch and i can't wait to continue these seasons of grace as i said i'm, I'm making it there <laughs> I, I'm, I am determined to finish grace by the time the new season starts i'm determined to do this that's a lot okay all right we'll see look i i started game of thrones two months before the final season and i made it so I've never watched Game of Thrones. I have to watch it. I, it. It was like it came out when I had just had Stella and like the first episode I watched, they like killed a baby. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do it. I was too like had too many hormones. Yeah. So I was like, no, and I, and I never watched it. But maybe maybe I'll go back. I, I highly I was very resistant to this, but it got so popular that it pulled me in. But it's brilliant and it's worth it. Um, it took me about five episodes to like really get it. At first, you're going to be like, who the hell is this? And why are people sleeping with their siblings? That might be your response. But after a while, you sort of get used to it. <laughs> are there any black people in Game of Thrones? They are. There are. And, okay. Um, it, there are two important characters, uh, Grey Worm and Miss Sandy. <sighs> My heart just like sank because I know <laughs> it's Grey Worm and Miss Sandy um, are, are two lovely uh, and wonderful characters. But yes, I highly advise that you watch Game of Thrones. But um, I want to thank you so much for joining me. You, I mean, we made this happen rather quickly. <laughs> and I was, I'm really grateful. And just like a lot of women of color, a lot of black women in particular, um, we just thank you for your voice and for continuing to speak to issues um, that, you know, not just are important to necessarily our community, but for the health and wealth of women everywhere. Your article inspired me and my colleagues, female colleagues at ESPN, the article done on you by Hollywood Reporter to start openly talking about our salaries. And even though I know that everybody's like, oh, but she makes this much. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about how much you make. It was about the fact that part of the reason why this pay disparity and uh, is still an issue in America after all this time is because the silence they've convinced us to have is their biggest weapon in paying us different amounts. I mean, I had a co-host at ESPN, um, one of my dear friends, uh, we were able to go into our last negotiation together and we got paid the same thing. But when I first started, I made about $300,000 less than him. Right. And so we were doing the same job. We're anchoring a show. Okay. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're anchoring Mm -hmm. a show together. So it's not like we're doing two different things, like same equal time, but, um, we were most proud of the fact that we were able to do that and get that done on the biggest contract that we both had at ESPN. So uh, you're one of many people um, 
to be thanked for just bringing attention to that issue because it really is quite disgusting how they'll try to play and pit women against each other and always to our own detriment. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that and congratulations. I'm glad you got to do that. And uh, it's all very humbling, you know, to have someone like you say that that article helped or to have anyone, if that article helped two people um, and, and, and the intent of it was understood that it was meant to help and meant to empower, then um, I stand here with a lot of humility and gratitude. Thanks, Jamel, for having me. We're going to get you this Emmy so you can join the club with us. Okay? <laughs> it's okay. It's not. It's all right. We're going to get you this Emmy. All right. <laughs> uh, well, Ellen is getting out of here. Y'all know I'm sticking around. Final segment coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. So at the beginning of this podcast, I was talking about revisionist history, and that was pretty much a perfect setup for this fucking unbothered because now I'm going to address erasing history. Now, it's one thing to sugarcoat history, which is something we do on a regular basis in this country, because if we told the truth about history, then it would fly in the face of that awesome public relations campaign that we've run about being the best there is and the best there ever was. The sugarcoating is expected at this point, but now we have people actively working to go beyond sugarcoating. They just flat out want to erase history, pretend it didn't happen. Senator Tom Cotton, who represents the great state of Arkansas, introduced the Saving American History Act of 2020, which is a bill that would prohibit the use of federal funds to teach the 1619 Project by K through 12 schools or school districts. Sidebar, why is it that bills that sound like something you might agree with usually wind up being some total fuck shit? Uh, Anyway, if you aren't aware of the 1619 Project, you need to get aware because it's one of the most courageous and compelling journalism projects ever done. And plug alert, the project is available in podcast form on Spotify. It was an ambitious project done by the New York Times that was spearheaded by unbelievable journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, by the way, is an upcoming guest on this podcast. The Times won a Pulitzer Prize for this ongoing multimedia project that was tied around the 400th anniversary of American slavery. They framed how slavery is this country's true foundation, which all facts based on whatever history book you read, and how despite hundreds of years, we have been unable to completely detach ourselves from the brutal legacy of slavery. The project explains how the legacy of slavery still infects every core of American life. Because while the raw form of slavery ended, the idea of it just continued to reinvent itself via Jim Crow, mass incarceration, the war on drugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Tom Cotton, though, doesn't want kids to actually know the truth about American history. He would prefer they live in a bubble of sanitized lies. Now, most of us grew up with these sanitized lies. And I am grateful that I was still curious enough about American history, which is black history, when I got to college, because otherwise my knowledge of history would have been limited to slavery and Martin Luther King Jr. Most of the history books I had as a kid pretty much made you believe racial inequality ended as soon as Martin Luther King Jr. said he had a dream. Tom Cotton is clearly one of those people who would rather our school system be propaganda centers instead of learning centers. As a nation, we are 
just infatuated with promoting the idea of American exceptionalism. The danger in that is that it makes it that much harder for us to be accountable because you can't be accountable if you keep lying or sanitizing what you've actually done. Maybe if we taught the real history in schools, the healing and the understanding could begin. Maybe these conversations about inequality wouldn't be so difficult if we had a better grasp of how we got here in the first place. Or better yet, we could finally understand how often we've repeated the same mistakes. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>